Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 55 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Michael Shabon. He's the author of novels such as The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Gentlemen of the Road, and The Yiddish Policeman's Union. His novel Wonder Boys was adapted into a feature film, and he recently worked on the screenplay for the new Disney movie John Carter, based on the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Michael Shabon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Uh, so first of all, just how did you first encounter the John Carter books, and what sort of an impact did they have on you? I first encountered them in page one books in Columbia, Maryland, in about 1973, I guess, whenever the Ballantine books reissued them with those stunning Gino Dashiel covers, they appeared somewhat magically, like the monolith in 2001. In a, in a display, cardboard display dump in the bookstore with this beautiful, uh, display with a big piece of artwork on the top of it. And then I guess maybe all 15, you know, 15 books in this display, each with this stunning cover. And, and it had a sense of obvious cultural importance, at least to me at age 10 or 11, where I just, you know, inspired this immediate desire in me to know more, to visit, to go there and see what this was about. What was this thing? What was, who was John Carter and what was going on with this green guys and red skinned beautiful princesses and flying boats and everything I was seeing on the cover, covers of these books. And, um, you know, I bought the first one and I loved it and I went back and bought the next one. And then I discovered that the science fiction book club was um, publishing them with um, equally arresting covers by Frank Frazetta in kind of double editions, two books in one. Um, so I started to get those because I was a member of the Science Fiction Book Club. And um, then not long after that, Marvel Comics, which I was also a great devotee, um, started doing comic book version of the same character. And that just kind of cemented it all in my mind. And, and uh, you know, so I was having a multimedia experience with the character of John Carter and the world of Barsoom. And, and I branched out pretty quickly into the Tarzan books and the other, the Pellucidar and everything Burroughs wrote. I mean, Edgar Rice Burroughs was one of my first fan crushes as a writer. Um, he, he was one of my first favorite writers and, um, I read a biography of him that came out, was published around then, that my public library had this big, giant hardcover biography of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I used to sign my name, Mike Burroughs Shabon. So I was obsessed. I did read my children, A Princess of Mars, when they were younger. Um, you know, I had kept in touch with those books. Uh, I had sort of reacquired the Marvel comic book versions of them. And then in the mid-90s, I wrote a screenplay, an original screenplay called The Martian Agent that was uh, it was kind of a steampunk thing before the term steampunk was really in wide circulation. And um, 
um, you know, I drew very heavily on my memories of those of Barsoom and of reading those books and creating the Mars in that screenplay, which also had canals and savage tribesmen and weird creatures and all of that. You know, so I never lost touch with that material. I always it always remained very important to me and and it was in part because of my experience writing that screenplay that I ended up you know coming onto the radar screen of Andrew Stanton. Uh, yeah, so based on the trailer, it looks like uh, some changes have been made to the story. Uh, how, how do you balance staying true to the source material versus the needs of the current project? Andrew Stanton and Mark Andrews, his collaborator, has already made a lot of the hard decisions about what to what to keep and what to let go. They had already analyzed the multiple characters. Say, there's you know three evil Tharks. Uh, chieftains, and you know, we we really only need one evil dark chieftain. We don't need three. Burroughs, as I, as you guys know, you know, he introduces the idea of telepathy, and everyone on Barsoom is telepathic. It's a terrible idea, and mm-hmm. and and Burroughs realizes that very quickly and completely abandons it eventually because it makes it makes storytelling impossible. If everybody can read everyone else's mind, you can't have secret plans, and you can't have you know, hidden agendas, and and those are the meat and potatoes of storytelling, and and so even Edgar's Burroughs betrayed his his own story. Um, so in a sense, we had his imprimatur. Another example is um, the the fact that John Carter is immortal. You know, when we first meet him in the first book, it's such a really bizarre element that apparently Burroughs derived from a popular novel of the time. And, you know, it, it has nothing to do with anything. It's completely irrelevant. And, again, he very quickly just, you know, he, he doesn't even abandon it. It's just It just withers away and never returns. They, As I said, they had already made a lot of those choices. They had already made a lot of those decisions. They had also made, the, I think, the very key decision to take material from the first three novels and to sort of consider those first three novels in the series as a whole and then look at the entire matter of those three novels as potentially the matter for three films. Each of those films would be conceived independently to tell its own discrete stories separate from the others so that if you didn't see the first film and you only saw the second one, you wouldn't be lost. You would be able to follow what was going on and it would present you with a satisfying experience on its own. And so there are elements in the first film, the one that we're talking about today, that don't actually appear in the novels until the second book. And I think, again, with all due respect to Edgar Rice Burroughs, who, as I, I've already said, you know, was one of my, is one of my great literary gods going back to the age of 11, but he, he was making it up as he went along. You know, he was writing by the seat of his pants. He was writing for money. He was writing very quickly. He was being paid half a cent a word. A Princess of Mars was the first thing he ever wrote, ever. Uh, he didn't really know what he was doing yet, I mean, and as as none of us would, um, as, as none of us did when we wrote the first thing that we ever wrote. And, um, you know, clearly he was remarkably gifted. He was able to do such a good job his first time out, but he got better. By the time you get to the fifth book, Chessmen of Mars, um, that's actually a really good book written by a, a, an experienced professional writer with a lot of with a lot of uh, words under his belt. 
uh, like any pulp writer of his time, there wasn't time to go back over it, you know, to ask yourself, does it really make sense for all of my characters' names to begin either with an S or a TH? You know, no, it's a terrible idea. It's really confusing. It was confusing to me when I was a kid. I had a hard time distinguishing Sarkoja and Sola and, and Tars, Tarkus and Tardos Moors and Sarks and Therns and Thoats. And, you know, I think if Burroughs had had a little more time or he had an editor who felt that the editor had a little more time, they probably would have gone over those things and straightened it out a little bit and clarified it. We were saddled to a certain degree with things that could not be changed, like the names of the most important characters, for example, but boy, do we wish we could change them. Your ultimate goal is to create a good movie or even a great movie. Um, your ultimate goal is not to sort of um, literally transcribe the action of the book onto film, which would ultimately, I think, be doing a dishonor to the book because you would be you would be able to capture none of the rich strange magic of that book in so doing and therefore you're ultimately you're betraying the book okay so i mean i thought it was really interesting uh, in your memoir manhood for amateurs john carter actually comes up during a conversation about whether or not to circumcise your son could you talk about that well it was in the context of discussing with my wife the argument that um many opponents of circumcision put forward that having a foreskin increases a man's sexual pleasure. And, you know, it's a tantalizing argument for a circumcised man to contemplate, but uh, but then it also involves a certain amount of impossibility, a failure of imagination, because, I mean, for one thing, how much more pleasurable do I need sex to be? It's already pretty awesome. And, <laughs> and, and furthermore, like, what would that be? Like, I can't even begin to imagine it and in sort of trying to imagine the unimaginable whenever I'm confronted with a problem of you know uh, irrational numbers or 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 you know string theories anything that's asking you to sort of imagine the unimaginable for example greater sexual pleasure in this case um, I always come back to the nine rays of the barsoomium spectrum, the nine colors of the Barsinian spectrum, where we are told by Burroughs that there are nine colors. And, and, you know, as a kid, I just would try to imagine what other colors there could be besides the seven basic colors and what they would look like and, and, and how you would even know that's what they were if you had earthly eyes and so on. And so that, that's how Barsoom worked its way into that particular discussion. Uh, so you you said that you started out wanting to be a, a fantasy and science fiction writer. Uh, how did you end up writing books like uh, Wonder Boys instead? Well, it's not that I wanted to be a fantasy and science fiction writer. It's that I wanted to be a writer. Um, and the, and and when I imagined the kinds of books that I wanted to write, they were the kind of books that I loved to read. So at any given moment in my life, from the point that I decided to be a writer forward, which was around this time, I discovered Burroughs and then Arthur Conan Doyle right around the same time, and those were kind of my first two crushes. You know, I would imagine writing books that I loved to read. Uh, when I was in my early to mid-teens, that, that was a very heavy diet of science fiction and fantasy, so those were the kind of books 
I tended to imagine writing someday or even began to try to write. And just as I got older and read more and read more widely, those imagined books changed along with my reader, my readerly diet. Um, although I never stopped reading and I still to this day have never stopped reading fantasy and science fiction. I'm reading, I'm re, re just started rereading Mervyn Peak Gormenghast trilogy, which I haven't read in about 30 years. And I'm a big Ian Banks fan, and I mean, I just, I, I never abandoned genre fiction as a reader at all. And what happened, you know, after The Mysteries of Pittsburgh and Wonder Boys, the books, you know, book you mentioned, and the short stories that I wrote at the beginning of my career as a published writer, um, uh, presented me eventually with this puzzle to myself of why was I only what happened to that idea of writing the kinds of books that you love to read? Like, yes, the books that I was writing were were modeled to some degree on or another on other books that I loved, but that my diet as a reader had never abandoned things that my output as a writer was just clear, clearly not reflecting. And I have wondered about that. Like, why? Why am I not writing? Why does my, my backlist look so, uh, you know, monochromatic when the spectrum of my reading is so, so um, multicolored. And I didn't really have a good answer. I had a, a lot of sort of shameful, cowardly answers for that question. Like, you know, I was, had been taught sort of early on in college and graduate school that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I wrote genre fiction. And not only would I not be taken seriously, but people just really didn't want to read it. Like my workshop mates and my workshop leaders. You know, I had workshop leaders who just out and out said, please do not turn science fiction into this workshop. That was discouraging, obviously. And, um, you know, if I had had more courage or more integrity, I might have stood up to it more than I did. But I wanted to be read, and I wanted to receive the benefit of whatever benefit there was to be received from people I was in workshop with and the teachers I was studying from. And, and you know, I didn't have a – I wasn't looking for a fight, and it wasn't like I don't love F. Scott Fitzgerald and John Cheever and Vladimir Nabokov and Eudora Welty and all those people. I, I love their work just as much as – if not more in some cases than, you know, Arthur C. Clarke or – Frank Herbert or whoever it might have been. So I had just sort of allowed myself to fall into this channel as a writer that at some point I realized I didn't want to be limited to anymore. Uh, so you also edited uh, two anthologies for McSweeney's with the aim of exposing readers to a wider range of genres and uh, making it okay for short stories to have a plot. Uh, right. how, how successful would you say that was and uh, why did the project stop after two books? I don't know. I would like to know how successful the project was. I mean, I mean, in terms of the short story, I don't think it worked. I mean, I just don't see if you kind of take a quick look at the quote. I'm always going to use this, put this term in quotes. Maybe we can just have this be understood, but at the so-called literary outlets for short fiction, it's, I don't see a whole lot of um, ghost stories and um, you know, sea stories and pirate tales um, being presented in the literary context. What I was really trying to do was rekindle my own interest in the short story form, um, which had abated 
quite a lot when I first began to contemplate what emerged as that first um, McSweeney's issue number 10. I mean, I have written very little in the way of short fiction since then. So even on, on a personal level, it didn't really work. But when you turn to not the novel, you look at recent, like the most recent novels by Colson Whitehead, uh, Gary Steingart, Rick Moody, uh, well, come on, Cormac McCarthy. I don't know. I mean, there's so many examples. There's almost been a little floodlit of so-called literary writers either embracing or circling around uh, clear literary genres. Well, yeah, and speaking of clear literary genres, you wrote this great Lovecraftian horror story called The God of Dark Laughter. How did that story come about, and were you surprised to see it appear in The New Yorker? Well, that was actually sort of my second foray. Um, I wrote a story. I created this fictional character in the novel Wonder Boys of August Van Zorn, who we're told is kind of a, a writer of Lovecraftian horror fiction, who had an early influence on the main character of that book. And at some point, I just got the idea to try to write an August Van Zorn story. You know, the pseudonym has always existed as a way to protect the quote-unquote serious literary writer from the taint of genre fiction. And so, I mean, that's how August Van Zorn used it. In the book, his real name is Albert Vetch, and, and he writes under the name of August Van Zorn because he's a literary professor. He's a professor of literature, and, and he has to use a pseudonym for, for that kind of sordid fare that he's cranking out. Uh, and that pseudonym was there for me as a kind of fig leaf, too, to just imagine writing a straight piece of horror fiction, you know, that wasn't wasn't meta or, you know, sort of playing with the tropes of horror fiction in a literary way. I just wanted to write a straight-out story about some awful goings-on in this small western Pennsylvania town that turned out to be um, rooted in some ancient cult of the Elder Ones, you know, just straight-ahead. Lovecraftian mythos kind of stuff, and I guess I felt when I did that um, that I had to protect myself under that pseudonym of August Van Zorn that I had created. Uh, it was a double fiction at that point, uh, and I wrote a story that was called In the Black Mill, and um, when I finished it, I thought it, it came out well. I believe my agent sent it to the New Yorker, who wouldn't even, I mean, it it's been a very brief period of time on the editorial desk there before reemerging with its dignity somewhat in tatters. Uh, and then she sent it to Playboy to a great fiction editor who used to be a Playboy named Alice Turner, um, who was a great champion of all kinds of genre writing in the literary context. And she took it and wanted to publish it, but she insisted that I publish it under my own name. And God bless her because that was right. I wrote that story. And, you know, if I want to write a piece of Lovecraftian horror fiction, I not only have the freedom to do so, but I also ought to be proud of it and put my name on it and let it just go out there with along with everything else that I've written. And so that was published in Playboy and, you know, got a little bit of attention from the sort of horror fiction crowd and it got included in Year's Best Horror Stories anthology, the Gatlow anthology. and. That encouraged me, and so at some point a little idea popped into my head about clowns, and what if clowns 
really looked that way and weren't, weren't makeup at all. And there was something really horrifying to me in the thought. I mean, I, you know, everybody, the coolrophobia cool has a name because a lot of people think clowns are terrifying and creepy. It's not just John Wayne Gacy's fault. Um, there's something about a clown in the abstract with the white skin and the red mouth and all of that that's it's bizarre anybody could have ever thought it was anything but horrifying in my opinion. But in any case, just trying to get at that and wonder about clowns and why they look the way they do and in trying to answer that question, it, the answer occurred to me in the form of a horror story and and this time I just wrote it without any monkey business about it being by August Van Zorn or any of that. But I said it in the same fictional Van Zornian universe of Plunkettsburg, which is sort of the western Pennsylvania town that he had all of his fiction in, as we're told in um, Wonder Boys. That was more for my own pleasure than it had nothing to do with wanting to wear a fig leaf of respectability anymore. And, uh, um, that time, I mean, maybe it's proof of that something had changed because when that one, my agent sent that one to the New Yorker first and they took it. And maybe part of the reason for that is because it was a little more thinkable, a little less unacceptable um, for them to publish a piece of straight genre fiction. And, you know, the fact that they've published Stephen King since then, I think, um, you know, suggests that there, there has been a change. And that's as it should be because, I mean, that's where it all comes from. And when you... Well, you know, the, one of the points I was trying to make in those, in the McSweeney's anthologies and what I, what the introductions I wrote for those, um, is that it was not even a hundred years ago, and certainly as, as long ago as 150 years ago, when all kinds of incredibly important work was being done by writers in France and England and Russia and Germany, um, a great European literary 19th century tradition, um, is a genre tradition. I mean, it's uh, and just unmistakably, unashamedly, unabashedly, in the works of the greatest writers of the 19th century, you find uh, sea stories and ghost stories and adventure stories and and you know kind forms early forms of proto science fiction and fantasy uh, across the board, and that kind of boundarylessness. Or, or literary realms where the boundaries are very porous and indistinct and can be kind of reconfigured at will is much more interesting and appealing to me as a writer than a world where the categories are really set and really distinct and um, the boundaries are really high and people have to stay where they start and can't move out of those categories. I mean, that's just inherently deathly. And the reasons why it changed are bad reasons. They're, they're, they're economic and financial and marketing kinds of reasons, and they have to do with snobbery and, and, and um, academic laziness. And, I mean, there's almost no good reasons involved for, for that change that took place over the, you know, between a, a writer like Dickens, who, who, you know, wrote crime fiction and supernatural fiction as easily as social realist um, fiction, uh, and often all in the same story. So you you also just had a short story in the New Yorker called Citizen Con. Uh, could you just say like what made you want to go back to the theme of comic book creators? That was actually a piece of uh, a story I had started a while ago and had abandoned because I couldn't figure out how to finish it. And I stumbled across it and reread it, and suddenly the, it was clear to me how it needed to be 
resolved and I rewrote it. And um, so, I mean, in a way, I, I returned very literally to a fictional world I had left behind because, um, you know, I, I started that story a while after Cavalier and Clay, but not so long after Cavalier and Clay. Uh, you know, I think some stories just take that long. Some stories, that one took a decade to write. And and I've had that experience before with returning to a short story that I wasn't able to finish and after many years and suddenly having it clear to me what needs to be done. I think it's just part of the process sometimes. Um, but it wasn't like I made any kind of deliberate decision, oh, now it's time to go back to comics at all. It was just I actually truly just was going through my hard drive looking for something and I saw that file and I opened it up and I was like, oh my God, I forgot about this story. Wow, this is actually kind of a good beginning. You know, why did I stop working on this? And then I got to the point where I had left off and thought, oh, I remember now. I couldn't figure out what to do. And now I, what about this? And it was just an accident. I guess uh, just, just finally, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Well, I have a novel coming out um, in September from HarperCollins called Telegraph Avenue. That's the main thing. That's the only for certain thing. I'm working on a project at Disney right now, a film called The Magic Kingdom. That's a, uh, I'm doing a, a revision of a pre-existing script, working with John Favreau, um, but that's still in pretty early stages. And then my wife and I are developing a TV series for HBO with a strong kind of genre connections, which is about, it's called Hobgoblin, and it's about a team of con artists and stage magicians and various charlatans who are assembled by British intelligence during World War II to fight against German spies. And uh, we're having a lot of fun with that one. But again, that's also a long way away from any kind of certainty. Okay, so uh, unfortunately, we're all out of time. So we're going to have to wrap things up there. So Michael Shabon, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Absolutely. My pleasure. I really enjoy talking to you guys. Thanks so much for giving me the chance. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Michael Shabon for joining us on the show. All right, so now we're going to talk about Disney's John Carter movie, which John and I just watched. I should, I should, we should say, actually, uh, that this is going to involve some spoilers for the, the John Carter movie and also for the first three books uh, in the first three Edgar Rice Burroughs, Barzoom books, uh, Princess of Mars, Gods of Mars, and Warlord of Mars. So just be warned about that. You know, John and I, you know, John did this Barzoom anthology and I wrote a story for it and we've been doing all sorts of interviews about John Carter and stuff. And so we really, you know, we're hoping that this movie was going to be great. And I, boy, I saw the, the second trailer in particular. Uh, I just got a really bad feeling that the movie was going to be terrible uh, after seeing that second trailer. So, yeah, so when the movie started, I uh, I wanted to like it, but I was I was afraid and and. Mm -hmm. I really, I, you know, and so, yeah, so at the beginning I was like, oh, I was so relieved. I was so almost ecstatic that mm. it was, as, it was, it was, it just seemed to be so good. I mean, yeah, we start out and we meet John Carter and he's this, uh, Confederate officer who doesn't want to fight anymore. And, uh, and that, I mean, uh, they've changed his personality. Uh, it seems like a lot, uh, in this movie, I, at least that's how it seemed to me. I mean, I think of John Carter as being very mm. earnest and never never backs down from a fight or never uh yeah you know has any he's kind of he's kind of an unbearable braggart 
you know, just like he, he's, he's so proud of how awesome he is. Um, and, and he's very, he's very humble, uh, uh, in, in the movie actually. So, so, I mean, that was probably, a, that was kind of a welcome change. I think it would probably be a little, uh, a little unbearable if he was that smug the whole movie. Yeah. So, so he, uh, so he rides out and follows the book pretty closely. Uh, you know, he, he sort of, uh, instead of his prospecting buddy, it's this army officer who's wounded. They're, they're escaping from, uh, the Apaches and they take shelter in this cave and they, the Apaches are, uh, have them cornered, but then they turn around when they, you know, there's something about this cave that, uh, that they know is, uh, is bad news. I was a little weirded out by how they had changed it to be a thern with a teleportation amulet kind of thing. Um, so, okay. So in the book, right. Uh, you know, John Carter's in this cave and, um, the the Apaches it's the Apaches, right? They see some evil some something they see something behind him that scares them and they run away. And we never as as the readers find out what it is. Uh and then he sort of falls and wakes up on Mars. I think, yeah, and it and it sort of deals in astral projection, which yeah, I I can sort of see for twenty twelve audience is maybe not gonna cut it. Um so they they make it a more Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic kind of uh thing that gets him to mars i mean you know in the books like john carter is made out to be like this super special guy like you know he's like he's forever young for some reason and like he doesn't remember ever being young and and you know obviously he he's this one well i mean he's what he's one of two guys i guess who ends up mysteriously transporting to mars and but, but i mean for a long while he's the only guy and uh I think it's actually it works better if he's just like an Earth, he's just some guy from Earth who happens to stumble upon this and then gets transported there instead of, you know, being an inherently special guy, um, because, you know, what makes him special on Mars is that he's from Earth, like sort of like the Superman deal where, you know, Superman comes from a planet with, uh, you know, where there's higher gravity or whatever. And so whatever. So he has like superpowers when he comes to Earth because it's because uh, it's different. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what happens with John Carter is that, you know, when he's on when he's on Mars, he's he's got he's basically got superpowers because he comes from Earth where the gravity's uh you know, heavier. And speaking of the gravity, I really I thought that was wonderful, that that part where and that's straight out of the book, too, where he uh, he's sort of bouncing all he when he first arrives mm-hmm. on Mars and the gravity is so much less and he's just like bouncing around all over the place and he can't it mm-hmm. takes him a while before he can sort of figure out how to walk yeah uh, it seems like the audience really got a kick out of that uh we should say that we actually we saw an early screening of this um that was uh partially reserved for press but there was actually a lot of uh, regular people who were in the audience as well so when we say the audience got a kick out of it we're actually talking about like mostly regular people uh you know not press that were uh enjoying the film so but uh, speaking of the jumping, though, I, I think my favorite part of the whole movie is is just John Carter interacting with the Tharks, um, and uh, their initial meeting is pretty funny um, and entertaining. It's like you know uh, he he meets Tars Tarkas, and 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 you know Tars Tarkas is approaching him in in a very uh, you know reasonable fashion. Uh, with, it's kind of funny to see it because it's like uh, in most movies, it's like you know the alien is just going to shoot first, ask questions later, and the and the, and the intelligent human has to. Or the civilized human has to has to like you know make peace with him and, and convince him to give him a shot. But it's like you know Tarsarkis is immediately like you know puts up his arms and uh, puts down his weapons and is uh, you know very uh, <laughs> very accommodating to this uh, strange alien creature that he finds. But uh, yeah, no, I mean their relationship is really great, and I mean it's like I mean that's one of the things that's great about the books too is 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 their is their relationship. 
And we should say Tars Tarkas is the the leader of the Tharks, which is one of the tribes of green Martians. And so they're, you know, what, 12 feet tall or something and have, and green and have four arms. Yeah. And yeah. And I thought, I thought the, the, the effects look actually uh, worked really well with them. Like I thought they looked pretty realistic, um, you know, and uh, I mean, you know, at least to the extent that Avatar does, you know, so sort of on par with the Avatar special effects. But um, I also thought um, it, it worked surprisingly well having a sort of human sized person uh, standing in, next to and interacting with these gigantic Tharks. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how that was going to play on screen. I thought it might look a little ridiculous, but um, it actually worked out pretty well. And well, and you mentioned like how funny it is when when Tars Tarkas meets John Carter. And that's really, I mean, this is a funny movie. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff in it. And uh, the book isn't particularly humorous, you know. And, and so that's another place that sort of diverges uh, from the book, uh, you, know, for the, you know, for the best, I, I think. Um, but uh, it, does, it, it does make it a little weird sometimes because, like, the Tharks are all, are, are basically comic relief, uh, you know, for the most part. But then it, it sort of... Every once in a while, they're shooting babies or branding people with a hot iron or something. And there's sort of a weird discontinuity there or juxtaposition there. And I mean, and a lot of the humor, too, is sort of physical humor or sort of visual humor, like uh, like the part where, um, you know, Tars Tarkas wants them all to be quiet and uses all his different hands to cover up all their mouths at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, stuff like that. The stuff like that is was really is really pretty funny. Um the thing I really I really didn't particularly like about the the whole Thark sequence was how they had cut out what's my favorite part actually of Princess of Mars, which is Sola's story, mm-hmm. um, and I guess it's sort of still in there a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you know they have the characters of Sola and Sarkozy in particular um, doesn't is is sort of a nasty is sort of a nasty uh, female Thark, and she just doesn't really do much in this movie. Um, okay, but so then the next thing that happens is the Tharks witness uh, an aerial battle between the Zidangans and the Heliumites, uh, and that was awesome. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, John Carter just, like, jumps up onto one of these flying ships and is just kicking ass and then rescues Dejah Thoris, and then she's kicking ass. The whole audience is cheering. You know, it was. I thought. I thought him rescuing her. They they played that really well because, like, you know, any one of the criticisms of the of the books is that you know, Dejah Thoris is always getting rescued by John Carter, and so like it's like she's an important character, but she almost never does anything, right? Um, and so she always has to have her man save her. But um, so but they still needed to have them get together, you know, like have have some, you know, have them meet and 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 bond, and so. She's like falling off one of the airships, and because he has these amazing jumping abilities, he sees this happening and he jumps and saves her. And so that was like a good a good way of him actually saving her without like where you know it's like well she couldn't she couldn't have saved herself and she was just gonna die. So so that was good. But then like um, he goes to actually save her further with a sword play, but it turns out that she's like uh, basically a better swordsman than he is. So. So they, they they made a nice little uh, turnaround there of, of our expectations because we thought like oh well John Carter just gonna save her and she's gonna you know sort of be meekly uh, uh, hiding behind him but then it turns out that uh, you know she can you know very easily take care of herself. Yeah, so I mean all that stuff was really good. I actually really liked the costumes uh, of the um, the Red Martians. I thought that they they were sort of evocative of Burroughs without being completely ridiculous. You know, which is a very hard line to walk. Uh, yeah. And because uh, I mean, you know, I mean, because basically everyone on Barzoom in, in the book is described as being pretty much naked all the time. 
and uh, and so they sort of had you know costumes that were kind of you know exposed skin but still sort of looked uh yeah looked reasonably uh practical yeah and i thought they did a fairly good job of uh of making them look red you know without uh actually having their skin just be red i think that's a like a hard line to sort of to 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 walk um you know in order to try to make them look like actual aliens with a like a different skin color but yeah yes yeah, i mean and yet and yet they're still obviously just human otherwise you know but i mean i thought they did a pretty good job i mean they sort of rely on like sort of a tattoos and and or sort of uh, that kind of marking on on their bodies that that were red and sort of sort of gave their overall uh, skin tones a, a reddish hue. Yeah, so I guess I just like visually all that stuff, you know, just just worked really well for me. Um, yeah, I mean, visually overall, the movie is actually quite impressive on on basically every level. I mean, um, I can't think of anything that I would complain about as far as the visuals. Yeah, I, I could see, you know, during that scene why you know I was thinking like, yeah, I can definitely see why this movie cost two hundred fifty million plus dollars. So John Carter wants to get back to Earth, and Dejah Thoris wants him to fight for helium. Incidentally, I, I, I was wondering if they were going to change the pronunciation for the mm -hmm. movie to helium or, or something that didn't just sound like the gas, but, but they didn't. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that uh, name. But anyway, so, and, uh, so they decide they're going to go down the river Is This is like my favorite part of, probably my favorite part of the Barzoom trilogy this the first trilogy is uh you know the part where they go to the valley door and so i didn't like this at all <laughs> in the movie uh i mean what happens in in um gods of mars is that the religion of barsoom is that you know when you know the people they live for hundreds of years and when you reach a sufficiently advanced age uh and you're ready to sort of go to heaven you're supposed to sail down this river and you go to this valley that's supposed to be like heaven but then it turns out that when you get there, it's this horrific, it's this really nightmarishly horrible place where you're just immediately set upon by these plant monsters and killed. And you're in this sort of, um, you're in this valley with high mountains on every side. So there's no escape. And it, I actually was reading online that people think that maybe this scene inspired H.P. Lovecraft to come up with a lot of his monsters because the, the plant men are these sort of tentacled faceless weird uh, weird monsters um so i really liked that and not, none of that happens really uh in the movie um it's it's just sort of they they, they sail down the river is and there's just we get some sort of back you know some uh, exposition about thern technology and that left me i was really there a lot of this movie was really this is the point where the movie starts to become kind of confusing and I'm not actually sure whether it's more confusing for people who have read the books or who haven't. <laughs> I think it's confusing probably for both for, for different reasons. But I was really confused, like, okay, so in this movie, what happens to the people who sail down the, the other pilgrims, right, who sail down the river is, you know, what happens to them? I mean, we see that there's other people doing it, and but there's no valley, etc. I mean, it's, it seems like they kind of tried to stay true to that idea by having the Warhoon sort of ambush them mm -hmm. in that general vicinity. And so there's the same kind of thing where John Carter is fighting hundreds of this sort of endless waves of monsters and, and prevailing. I guess you didn't really like that part, right? Or you had some issues with that? Yeah, I mean, it was cool and all, but uh, it just it seemed a little hard to believe that, uh, you know, even John Carter is as awesome as he is with his, uh, you know, standing alone with his two swords against this uh, horde of Warhoon. Remember, the Warhoon are, are just are the same race as the Tharks. It's just a different tribe. And so they're like 14 foot tall, you know, four armed 
you know, gigantic aliens that, that, you know, they can kick a lot of ass. And so, uh, you know, one, one little human, even, even one that has, uh, you know, stronger muscles because he comes in a world of greater gravity. It's, eh, it seems a little hard to believe that he could take out so many. Um, and I guess he does get defeated by them. Um, you know, he gets uh, knocked out and everything, but still it's like, you know, he, he took out, <laughs> he took out like a piles and piles of, of Warhoon so that it was like, he was just like, uh, it was like a, a massacre. Um, uh, it's a little hard to believe, but, and, and the thing is, it's like, you know, he sends Dejah Thoris away, but it's like, well, if he just kept her with him, they probably could have just killed them all, <laughs> you know, because I mean, she's at least as good as he is. So uh, if not better, so. You know, after the initial introduction of Dejah Thoris, which I really liked, I, I started to get really annoyed by her. Um, mm-hmm. And like the the thing I just don't understand, there's another sort of confusing thing is that she seems to not believe him when he says that he's from Earth even though he can jump like 500 feet in the air and looks totally unlike anyone else she's ever seen before in her life. Yeah. And it just, that, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. But, uh, you know, the, the moments like that are few and far between in the movie, I should say. I mean, you know, overall, I think we, you know, I think it's fair to say we both enjoyed it. I mean, at least I did. Um, so, I mean, I don't want people to think that, uh, that, that, that we, that we're hating on the movie. It's, just, uh, you know, as, as fans of the Barsoom books, um, uh, as fans of the Barsoom books, you know, just we we have high expectations, and we're of course, and as geeks, we're gonna you know nitpick. So, yeah, well, I would say I I really really liked you know the parts I've mentioned the first thirty minutes mm-hmm. or so up to that air, airship battle, and then the rest of the movie I thought was really pretty uneven. But uh, but I yeah, agree. there were I mean there were sort of uh, you know it, there were high points throughout though. Yeah. I mean, uh, but I mean speaking of the trailer though, I I, I don't get those trailers at all, huh. having seen the movie because I mean. That airship battle is so cool. I mean, that's the first thing I would have stuck in the movie, you know. If yeah. I were making a trailer, I would just have that, you know. I would just show that scene, you know. Actually, yeah, you know, speaking of which, uh, you know, I mean, everybody by now has probably seen this fan trailer that uh, someone cut together of all the existing trailers, which is actually way better than any of the official trailers. But even that, like, and I mean, obviously the person who did the fan trailer was restricted by what was already out there because, uh, you know, he didn't have access to the whole movie. But I mean, um, having seen the movie, it's like, Wow, like yeah, that's just like that is not the trailer at all. I would put together. I mean, you know, yeah, and 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 I mean the the trailers made it look like a like a rip off of Avatar, basically. You know, like basically everyone I talked to said, "Oh, I already saw Avatar. I don't need to see mm-hmm. this." And you know, that's that's a fairly small part of the movie. You know, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, one of the things that I thought was great about the fan trailer is that they really they try to emphasize like you know this is a movie a hundred years in the making you know from the mind of Edgar Rice Burroughs and it's like it's like the official trailers like didn't try to capitalize on that at all and I mean you know given that uh you know given that they even dropped the of Mars from the title so that it's just called John Carter it's like I mean it's even less you know likely to you know to to make people who are only sort of partially familiar with uh with the books or only heard of them to even make the connection you know uh I, yeah so john carter they get back with the tharks and tars tarkas is now a prisoner and john carter is now a prisoner and they have to go to a gladiator arena to fight some four-armed white apes who have been made 10 times the size that they are in the books i wasn't crazy about any of that uh honestly also like uh this is like sort of the ultimate uh, insult to sarkoja here in this uh in this uh a scene because uh, Sarkoja ends up in the arena with them and then like she's basically just torn in half by a white ape and that's like her that's her end it's like oh uh <laughs> all right I mean I thought she had like stuff to do in the story but I guess not I mean she's just uh sort of a minor antagonist like sort of uh you know 
kind of a jerk. She's just kind of a jerk in the movie. She doesn't really do anything, you know. I mean, she's just there to annoy people, I guess. And then and then she gets torn in half. So yeah, and and it's not even it's like happens so it's so you know she she mm-hmm. she dies so summarily that you're not even sure. Like, wait, who was that? Was that? Was that Sarkoja just got ripped in half? I'm not even sure. Yeah, no, I I knew it was Sarkoja, but I I I wasn't actually sure afterward if she actually had died or not. Maybe she just got brutalized or something, and she somehow survived that. But uh, no, I, I'm pretty sure now in retrospect, after talking about it afterward, uh, I th- I think she did get torn in half there. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but so the whole the whole gladiator thing, I didn't like at all. It's not in the book uh, that that I remember certainly. Um, and actually, that actually brings me to sort of like, I was looking over some of the reviews of the movie and, and it, it was really annoying me how many reviews were by people who had obviously never read the books and were mm-hmm. saying, like, 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 we're saying like dumb things, attributing things in, in the movie to Edgar Rice Burroughs, mm-hmm. you know, like, like that was one thing where they said like, oh, like this gladiator, you know, a gladiator type scene like this may have been good in 1912, but we've seen it <laughs> a million times since then. Uh-huh. And you're like, no, actually it's not in the book. Uh, yeah. Uh, there was a, there was a, somebody said, you know, like, cause, cause John Carter has such a Han Solo vibe in this movie. You know, they said, you know, some, one of the reviews I read said like, you know, having a Han Solo type character might've as the main character might've been good in 1912, but you know, hmm. when George Lucas had the, had the good sense to make him a, not the main character, like stuff like that just drives me crazy. You know, I mean, hmm. and, and then, so, yeah, so, so John Carter kills these white apes and then somehow all the Tharks then want to fight to the death for him. Uh, hmm. And that's that didn't I didn't understand that at all. I also I wasn't thrilled with how he you know he ends up like killing one of the white apes and it like lands on top of him and like he tunnels through it with his sword and bursts out the top of it like covered in blue blood. Yeah, I I didn't like that either. I that, yeah. that was total. It, it was sort of an Evil Dead moment uh, in the yeah, middle yeah. of the movie. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wish. I mean, I I I was sort of thinking. I, I wish they had kept it a little closer to the book, and had you know had the whole thing where they go to the valley door and discover that the therns have made up this whole religion to kill people and stuff. And then they reveal that. And that sort of is what gets the Tharks to change sides, you know, mm-hmm. but in general though, the, the, the client, the climactic stuff just felt very um, pro forma to me. I've just felt like every other movie I've ever seen where there has to be mm-hmm. a big battle at the end. And, you know, and and the hero has to get the girl, you know, and 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 stop her from marrying the wrong guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Although I did, I did really like the last image, you know, where he's sort of uh, saying Barsoom, and you know, he's going mm-hmm. back to to Barsoom, and I did, I I, I was like, yeah, he's back, and going back to Barsoom. I, it's funny, actually. I the sort of the more I think about this movie, the more I like it. You know, I I had mm-hmm. very mixed feelings about it uh, when it ended. But I, I find myself now kind of wishing I could watch the uh, the airship battle again. And yeah, yeah. You know, if they made another one, I you know I might go see it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm actually I actually am planning to go see it again because uh, you know uh, I actually um, before we knew that we were going to see an advanced screening of this, I had made plans with my friend uh, Rob to to go see the movie. You know, at this one particular theater, it's like it's like the best theater I've ever been to in New York, and uh, uh, so we're going to go see the the movie there in IMAX 3D and, and, you know, on opening day. And so I actually extended my trip to New York here um, uh, so that I could do that. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm happy to go see it again. I'd love, I'd love to see it again, especially on that, in that amazing theater. So, I mean, yeah, it's at least good enough to, that I'm willing to go pay for it even after I got to see it for free. So, um, you know, like I said, it's, it's not, it's not a great movie, but I mean, uh, I think it's fun. Um, 
especially if uh, like you know if you haven't read the books and you don't have any attachment to them i think it's probably even more fun because then you're not you know you don't have any expectations or you know you don't you know you're not comparing it to anything so yeah i mean i think it's definitely worthwhile uh okay so i mean so john i mean you edited you just edited this barzoom anthology you just want to maybe explain that uh for people who are just listening to this for the first time Sure. Uh, yeah, so I edited a book called uh, Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, and it's uh, 14 stories of uh, uh, sort of the further adventures of John Carter and, and friends. Um, and so Dave has a story in there. Uh, and uh, also Joe Lansdale, uh, Catherine M. Valente, J- uh, Jonathan Mayberry, um, Tobias Bakel, and, uh, you know, 14 stories altogether. Um, and, uh, so some of the stories are, uh, sort of about John Carter. They focus on John Carter. Some of them, uh, focus on, uh, new characters, uh, or, or like, you know, Tharks, like, like, like Dave's stories about, uh, uh, Tharks and, uh, and, you know, other, others focus on other characters. Like, uh, there's a story, um, about Woola. Um, actually we didn't talk about Woola at all. Woola was a great character in the movie, but, uh, Woola is sort of John Carter's like dog-like companion. Uh, but you know, it's an alien, it's an alien dog. Yeah, but I mean, one of the interesting things about the book is that uh, not only does it does it sort of tell new adventures, but it sort of um, some of the stories also sort of critique some of Burroughs' attitudes and and, and also sort of uh, sort of contemporize some of Burroughs' ideas as well. Uh, you know, because like, I mean, uh, if you try to read the books, the original books now, it's like they're uh, they can be kind of hard to read as a modern reader. But yeah, so I mean, I, I think uh, the writers did a good job of, of staying true to Burroughs while at the same time, um, you know, sort of updating uh, Barsoom a bit. Like Cat Valenti's story, it's a it's a story from like the Tharks' point of view, and it basically talks about how 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 what John Carter told you isn't exactly right. Like he didn't really understand their culture, like he thought he did, and so so this is the like the true story of the Tharks, um, and. Uh, and, and, you know, Theodore Augustus' story is is about Woola, like I said, and, and so, like, it sort of kind of does something similar uh, for, for the Calots, and, 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 and it's sort of, sort of it's uh, Woola's story from Woola's point of view. And uh, and so there's other things like that in there that I think are, um, it, it, it's an interesting take on, on the setting. Uh, and so, yeah, if, if anybody is interested in the anthology, if you if you go to my website, uh, johnjosephadams.com slash barsoom, um, there's actually a little uh, site set up just for the for the anthology there and uh you can read a few free stories and uh you can read interviews with uh most of the authors and also some of the artists and you can also look at all of the artwork from the anthology so and because each each story has an illustration that goes along with it so um so if you want to uh you know sort of preview before you uh buy it uh you can uh, go over there and uh, check it out and i mean also you know we did this uh this reading for the book uh in, in brooklyn and you know, all, all, many of the authors and artists came and we all sort of just talked about the, the series. And and one of the things that one of the artists said uh, that I thought was really interesting, but he he was just talking about how he had read what an influence Burroughs was on a whole generation of NASA scientists, that if you talk to NASA scientists of, of a certain generation, an incredibly high percentage of them got interested in outer space after reading the John Carter stories. And uh, I was actually just reading an article where it was saying that uh, Carl Sagan, uh, for a time, was flirting with the idea of getting a vanity license plate that said Barsoom. Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. I guess just I guess just the the last thing maybe I wanted to mention was uh, in our interview with Michael Shabon, he was talking about how Burroughs dropped the idea of telepathy because it makes storytelling impossible uh, if every character knows the thoughts and agenda of every other character. 
That's actually something I've been sort of struggling with recently because there's been all this stuff in the news about how functional MRI technology is getting good enough that it seems that in the not too distant future, it actually will be possible to build a reliable lie detector and read people's minds, uh, you know, with, with some degree of accuracy, with a fairly high degree of accuracy. And so I just, whenever I'm thinking now about a story set in the future, I, you know, I just think, is this story going to have to involve technology that can read everyone's minds? And that just makes it really hard to, as Michael Chabon was saying, to tell a story. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting dilemma. I mean, uh, I know, I know uh, a lot of people sort of thought that the mystery story would die when cell phones came along because so many mystery stories relied on the protagonist not being able to get to a phone in time to, you know, to make that uh, crucial phone call or something. But, uh, you know, but the, but, but, but mystery stories have survived and, and even thrived, uh, you know, despite the presence of cell phones. So, you know, I, I think they're, that writers are pretty clever and uh, we'll probably come up with some ways of, of working around that. I mean, um, you know, the Alfred Bester novel, The the, the Demolished Man, is is set in a world where, uh, you know, telepathy is possible. And um, and, and, and the and the protagonist uh, who basically figures out a way around that. I think that's kind of a cheat, though, The Demolished yeah. Man, because I mean, because I, I used to read about that story as an example of, a, you know, a murder mystery set in a society where everyone's telepathic. And I thought that was such a cool idea. You know, how do you how do you do that? But then it turns out the guy just memorizes this funny rhyme. And then he's just thinking about that. And then people try to read his minds and all mm-hmm. they get is the stupid rhyme he keeps repeating in his mind, stuff like that. You know, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really tell a story of of trying to do a murder mystery where everyone knows everything that you're thinking, you know. This is actually something that, that confuses me about print, of the novel Princess of Mars, but everybody's supposed to be telepathic. But then Sola knows that Tars Tarkas is her father. Mm-hmm. But nobody knows that. But she's right, keeping right. that a secret, right? Yeah. Is there any explanation for that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't remember that. Yeah. If anyone has an explanation for that, let me know. Because <laughs> uh, I've been wondering about that. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. We'd really like to thank Michael Shabon for being our guest today. If you have any questions or comments about anything we just talked about, please post a comment on this episode over at Wired.com. And you can find that by visiting our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 55. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program... Tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.